If you've not done so, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, where we will pick up where we left off last week and continue our study through the gospel according to Matthew. I'm going to read verses 29 to 39 in just a minute. As you're turning there and getting situated, I want to give you a little inside scoop to what I believe the purpose of this time is. And I don't just mean this particular day and Sunday and sermon. I want to give you a little insight into how I view what preaching is and then explain how I hope today's message will fulfill that function. Preaching is not teaching information although there might be information that you learn. Preaching is aimed at transformation and an act of worship where you behold the glory of Jesus Christ through his word and see God for who he really is through the incarnate Son of God. And as you see everything about him, you not just behold, wow, that's good, but you want to be like him. And you want to be like him so much that you want everybody else around you to be like him because it's so good. And so that compels us to action and mission and doing things because we behold the glory of Jesus. That in a nutshell is the difference between just teaching a lecture or a Bible study or just reading a good book about the Bible and what I consider preaching. Beholding the glory of Jesus to where your heart's desire, your affections are stirred up toward God to where you're like, I like that. You know, my heart just feels strangely warmed at certain moments when I listen to good preaching. Like I'm saying that about me, Phil Howell. There are times when I listen to good preaching and my heart just gets warmed to the glory of Jesus. It's like, I want to do and be and Follow him with all of my mind, heart, soul, and strength. So today's message, the big idea is for you to hear declared that the God of Israel fulfills his promises through Jesus. And my hope is that as you look around the world, look down in your heart, and have all kinds of different things stirring and wooing you away from the glory and majesty of the kingdom of God, because there's a lot of them, aren't there? Or if we're to be honest, there's a lot of pain and sorrow and suffering, and we're waiting and we're wondering, is God actually going to deliver on his promises? Shootings in malls yesterday ring a bell of reasons to wonder, God, you said there'd be a day when there'd be no more tears and no more violence and there would be love amongst all kinds of people, every tribe, tongue, and language gathered around the earth, all in one harmony relationship together. That's not existing today. Instead, we have shootings based on ethnic racism and problems all around the world that hurt. So there's reasons that we might start thinking, can we trust the promises of God? Is he really that glorious and good? Or does that warmness start to get a little cold 
because of what's right in front of our faces every day. My heart just broke this week when I heard a story of a friend of mine. He's a pastor in Minneapolis, and one of his elders in the church, one of the other leaders in the church, their kid was out swimming and drowned, and it just like, you know, sometimes you hear those stories, and you're like, oh, that's sad, but my heart just broke, just started to want to weep, but I'm not a crier, so I just didn't cry that much, but that's what was going on inside. I was just like brokenhearted. And you have those moments, right, where you just look at the pain of this world and you're like, come, Lord Jesus, we are waiting. So, the hope for you and me is that either the God that we worship is worthy of our trust because his promises are true and his word does not fail, or we should just give up this whole church and Christianity thing. So today, I want us to see in this story that the God of Israel fulfills his promise through Jesus. Let's read. There's two little stories. They're connected geographically. And so we're going to read them both together, 29 through 39, in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel." Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Let's take these two stories one at a time and see that the big idea is true of both of them, that God... The God of Israel fulfills his promise through Jesus. In verse 29, our story tells us that Jesus went on from there. Where was Jesus previously in the previous story? We're in the interaction with a Canaanite woman. We know that he was in the region of Tyre and Sidon. And then he went up on a mountain and sat down. 
after walking along the Sea of Galilee. So I have a map for you, again, to help. So we remember, there's Tyre and Sidon. This is at least going to be about 30 to 50 miles in between the Sea of Galilee, where all the action has been for the most part in the Gospel of Matthew. We're at 15 chapters. We're close to 60 sermons, friends. We've been around here for a while. But last week, we took a little break, and Jesus went up to this region in the Tyre and Sidon region. There was that one episode, and then probably several days go by, and we pick up the story, and it seems as if he is on this side of the lake. Why? Two reasons. Next slide. The reason is because Mark says that this same feeding of the 4,000 happened in the Decapolis. Deca is the word for 10. Polis is the word for city. It means 10 cities. So this circle is trying to show you that that is the region to which Mark says Jesus was when the feeding of the 4,000 was. So probably if he's on the Sea of Galilee, it's up at the top left-hand corner there of that circle where the Decapolis is. And so what we know then is that Jesus is back in the Sea of Galilee region as he went on from his little getaway and withdrawing from all of the crowds and the hostility of the Pharisees that we've been following along. And then now he's, he's there in that map. Why is that significant? Because the Decapolis is a region that was not Jewish, Gentile region. And in this region, you have what are at that time 10 cities, but that's the region where seven different nationalities or ethnic peoples were driven out of the land of Canaan and then pushed over to the east, where I showed you on the map. So that geographical distinction is going to be very important as we move forward. And then Jesus goes up onto a mountain, which I don't think is just, well, there was a mountain and hill, uh, I think that this probably has an echo to the idea of Jesus being like the Mount Zion. He is up and he sits down. The last time he did that was for the Sermon on the Mount. And then they're together for, it says, three days. So even though the text doesn't say it, I'm kind of assuming Jesus and the crowds did not stay silent. Like they just sat there for three days. Now, although being just at the feet of Jesus is great, I'm assuming Jesus is teaching and preaching just because that's what he does everywhere he goes. He preaches and he teaches, but here the emphasis is on the healing. And so in verse 30, it says, And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet. The translation here is quite soft. Literally, it says they're throwing people at Jesus' feet. I think what you should imagine in your mind about this story is that it's chaotic. It's not organized. People are just being thrown at Jesus. And we know that he's been in the Decapolis previously. He healed the demoniac, and then the demons that left, the legion of demons, went into the pigs. If you're familiar with that story earlier in Matthew's gospel, that was here in the same region. So Jesus has been here before, and he's done something quite powerful and miraculous. So it seems as if word is spreading that this guy can do something, and flocks of people are coming and throwing their sick 
and blind and crippled and mute. And then it just says, many others. And then don't pass over these words. He healed them. He healed them. Last week we were wondering if Jesus was ethnocentric, a racist, if you want to put it that way. Here he is in a non-Jewish community, and he is healing people like crazy. And so the crowds were marveling. They were wandering and probably inquisitively wondering, wow, who is this guy? Because they saw the mute speak, and the crippled are healthy, and the lame walk, and the blind see. Now, the most interesting little word study in here is the word for crippled. Do you see that? Crippled appears twice. It's the same word that's used elsewhere to talk about when somebody loses a body part. So later on in Matthew's gospel, I think it's chapter 18, he says, it would be better for you to be missing one of your eyes, and it uses this word for crippled here, than to lead people into temptation. It would be better, like, for you to have some sort of great disability and lose a limb or an arm or an eye. The point is, I want you to imagine that, like, Jesus just healed somebody, at least somebody, because of the way it's literally said, that probably, like, didn't have an arm or leg. And then they have a leg. Like, come on, this is good. Like, just a leg appears that wasn't there before. This is one of the reasons why when you are around other church culture, there are people that talk about how um, there's, like, healing services, and I'm not doubting that people get healed anymore. People get healed still through the power of Jesus. But I'm still waiting for somebody to heal like Jesus does. You know, in this sort of miraculous fashion, these these quote-unquote prophets that go around, I have the gift of healing just like Jesus. And I think they're overstating their case, you know? Because when you read Jesus, it just doesn't seem like he's doing like, yeah, I had a headache, and then the headache went away. And you're like, did you have a headache? Was that all just a show? Jesus' healings are undeniably, whoa. The God of Israel must have done this, which is the conclusion of all of these non-Jewish people, which is the only reason why Matthew includes that little detail at the end. And they glorified the God of Israel. If this was a Jewish community, what would you say instead? And they glorified God. This confirms that Jesus is in a non-Jewish region because all of these non-Jewish people are now glorifying the Israelite God. Therefore, we learn from this passage that the God of Israel is fulfilling his promises through Jesus. What promises? Well, Adam already read it for us. I'll put it back on the screen for you. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. I think one of the reasons why Matthew tells the story this way is to help you know that the promise of God for the God of Israel is that there would be a day when the lame walk, and the mute speak, and the blind see, and the deaf can hear. 
And that poem that Adam read for us earlier in the service was beautiful and glorious. And it was written hundreds of years before Jesus came. So I want you to picture yourself and think about the reality that you heard Isaiah 35. And then you prayed, God, you promised that one day you would bring healing to my daughter who can't see or to my broken body and my legs that don't work. I want you to imagine you're that person and you're praying to the God of Israel, deliver on your promises, and then you die and never see Jesus. You might be wondering, wouldn't you? Is God really going to fulfill his promise? And so for hundreds of years, the nation of Israel was longing and waiting for when God would finally come through and deliver on his promises. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus, in everything that he does, in every which way that the Gospels is orchestrated to teach us who he is and what he is doing, it is he is delivering his promises. 500 years ago when Isaiah said that there would be a day that this would come, it's here. It has arrived. It has already now broken into this broken world. Jesus is the Messiah that was longed for in Isaiah 35 and dozens of other promises of God. So, friend, pray that God would heal you. Yes, do so. And know that that healing may not come until Christ comes again. In the same way that the people of Israel heard a promise in Isaiah 35, and many of them did not get to see the fulfillment of that promise, it did eventually come. Because when Christ came, he fulfilled it. So you live now in that same kind of time zone where you've heard promises of a new heaven and a new earth. When the lame will walk, and the deaf will hear, and the blind will see, and there'll be no more weeping, no more tears. And you're wondering day in and day out, really? Look to Jesus and behold the way that he fulfills the promises of God. This God that we're worshiping, the God of Israel that we should be glorifying, exalting in, He delivers. Let's see that in our second story. The feeding of the 4,000. Now, when I just read through the story, I wonder if any of you were wondering, what promise does this fulfill? In what way does this passage fulfill a promise of God? And let me give you a couple suggestions of how. On the screen behind me, you'll see Psalm 107, 4 through 9. Notice how eerily similar the language is of Psalm 107. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. He delivered them from their distress. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works, to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good 
things. There's like three or four words that are the exact words used in our story that seem to suggest that Psalm 107 is being fulfilled. Desert wasteland, nowhere to go, hungry people, their soul fainting. Did you notice Jesus is afraid that they might faint? So he does not want to send them away. They were together for three days. Maybe some people packed a lunch. Maybe some were fasting for three days and didn't eat anything. But by the third day, nobody's got any food left. Except seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. So Jesus is through the promise of God that he will deliver his people when they're in a desert wasteland and their souls are fainting and all that language seems reminiscent, but that's really not the promise that I want you to be thinking about. The God of Israel fulfills his promise through Jesus, the promise of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Probably one of the most important passages and promises in the whole Bible, if you're going to understand what the Bible's telling you in terms of the big story, you need to get this passage, Genesis 12, 1, 2, 3. God calls a man named Abram. He says, I want you to leave your land. I'm going to put you and I'm going to give you a land. And then there in that land, I am going to bless you and make you great. And your name is going to be great. And then look at the next slide. So that, that's the most important phrase, I think, in this passage. So that. Why is God pouring out his blessing on this man, Abram, who later gets his name Abraham? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promised Abraham that through his family he would bless the whole earth. The story of the feeding of the 4,000 is the fulfillment in part of the Abrahamic promise that through Jesus, God is going to bless all the earth. Now, the reason you may not be seeing that right away is because you're just thinking about the story of the feeding of the 4,000. But we should be thinking didn't they just tell us a story of Jesus, Jesus being around a crowd of 5,000 people and feeding a bunch of people? Like, why do we have another one? Just because it happened again? This is a legitimate question. What do you think your best answer is to that question? Why repeat another feeding story that sounds so similar? Like, in fact, look at the similarities between the two. There are a lot. It's almost like, did, like, was this old school copy and paste? Jesus goes up onto a mountain. Then he heals a bunch of people. Then the word compassion, splagizomai, it means that he has a gut-wrenching heart. His bowels are being stirred for these people. Both stories mention Jesus' compassion for the crowds. So he then turns to his disciples and says, hey, how about you feed them? And they look around at each other and be like, where are we going to get some bread? And so they say, we don't have enough. But he gives them, they, the disciples give Jesus what they have. So Jesus takes what they have. He gives thanks. He blesses the bread. He breaks it. And then he starts 
giving it to the disciples. The disciples then distribute the bread. All are satisfied. And then Jesus gets in a boat and crosses the sea. Like that's a lot of parallels between the two stories, which is why some of those different critical scholars will say, yeah, maybe it just didn't happen. This just seems fabricated. But that's because we're not reading the Bible like a Jewish person. We read stories in the Bible and we read them through modern lenses and we're wanting it to be overly precise in the details. We don't really look for symbolism. We don't really think about Old Testament echoes and allusions. There's a whole bunch of things that when you read the Bible, you are putting on a certain spectacles, glasses for how you read it. All of you are putting them on, not literally, naturally, some of you have fine eyesight, but metaphorically, you have some sort of way of reading the Bible, and most of us, our default way of reading the Bible is through the spectacles of our modern world, not Jesus' Jewish world. Matthew is a Jewish man writing about Jesus. So what's the point, Pastor Phil? The point is... Talk to any Jewish scholar that knows how to read Jewish literature, and they will tell you that repetition of the same story over and over again is why you see so many repetitions through the Old Testament. It's the way they tell their stories. So Robert Alter is a professor at Berkeley over in California. He's a Jewish man, not a Christian, but he has written the definitive work on how to read narrative stories in the Bible, mainly the Hebrew Bible. But I think what he says there really relates to what we see here. And here's the illustration he gives. It's a long, big book, but this illustration's worth the whole thing. And here's what it is. He says, I want you to imagine that there is in Hollywood um, lost sets of all of these Western movies, and for decades and centuries, nobody finds them, and then one day they're uncovered, kind of like the way we do archaeological digs. So some sort of time has passed, and somebody uncovers a whole bunch of Western films. And there's a series of them, and it seems as if there's this same pattern going on where every single time there's this hero sheriff, and there's all these bad guys, and there's this big showdown, and they're all looking at each other. And then at the last minute, he pulls out his gun and boom, 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 shoots everybody. Does that sound somewhat like, you know, the old Western movies? He says, but on the 12th film of the series, the sheriff has a broken arm, and he has on his back his rifle instead of his gun in the holster. And you've been watching all of these films, and the modern reader, the spectacle he puts on, says, oh yeah, that's probably not the original story. Somebody added that later. This is just some sort of made-up thing. And so then you get all critical and wonder what's going on, instead of realizing that the whole point of the difference is to show how much greater the twelfth and final film is. That at all odds, the sheriff with his broken arm still pulls off his rifle and shoots all of the guys. And then, wow! It's to make the point that after you've seen the pattern, you then see, wait, the pattern was different. And now that the pattern's different, that pops out in a new way. That's the art of biblical narrative by Robert Alter in a nutshell. So if we see there's a pattern in the way that Matthew is telling his story of the feeding of the 5,000, let's notice the differences of the feeding of the 4,000. So the first and most obvious is what? There's not 5,000 people, there's 4,000 people. 
Second is that there's not five loaves of bread, there's seven loaves of bread. I find it quite comical when people try and say, wow, this side, the 5,000, it's a bigger miracle. <laughs> five loaves, only five, and 5,000 people. I don't think that's the point, guys. I think it's a big miracle either way. Seven loaves is not going to feed 4,000 people. Okay, now you might remember hearing 12 basketfuls were left over, but I have translated that for you with the normal Jewish word for satchel or some sort of small pouch. It's the word used, think of like backpack, fanny pack, something more smaller, and it said that there were 12 of them. One maybe for each disciple. But as we talked about, more than likely, almost everybody seems to agree that the 12 corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel. Because remember, the big difference between the two is that Jesus is feeding Jews in the feeding of the 5,000. He is feeding non-Jews in the feeding of the 4,000. The location is different. The audience is different. So then that begs the question, what might be the significance of the sevens? Well, maybe no significance whatsoever. He's just telling the story the way it was. That's reading like a modern person. Take off those spectacles. The highlighted differences should pop and say something. How do you know that? Well, if he's so careful about every little detail and just wants you to know that there were seven loaves of fish, why didn't he tell you how many fish there were? And there were a few fish. Because he doesn't care about the fish. It's not his point. His point is to show the contrast between the 12, or the 12 and the 7 and the 5 and the 7. The 7 loaves could be two things. One, 7 loaves is the number of completion. It's the day that creation was finished and the Sabbath day was. And so this is talking about the fullness. Complete, full, perfection, completion. But... Remember the map? Where is Jesus? The Decapolis. What did I say earlier about who's living in the Decapolis? The seven different tribal nations of the non-Jewish Canaanite peoples that were driven out to the land east when Joshua came into the promised land. You can read it in Deuteronomy, you can read it in Joshua, and you can even read it in the book of Acts. All of them highlight the number seven for this movement into the promised land and driving out seven Gentile nations. All that to say, I don't think the seven then is just a coincidence. I think he's telling the story in such a way to say, hey, there's this great feeding miracle, and the seven loaves and the seven baskets Baskets big enough to fit the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9 when he's let out the window and they kind of reel him out so he can get away without getting killed by a bunch of angry mobsters. That's how big the baskets are. So don't think, oh, there was 12 versus 7. There probably was more leftovers in this second miracle. But the bottom line is the bottom line on the screen. Jews, Gentiles, why tell two stories? Do you realize how expensive it is to write books in the first century? I was listening to a lecture the other day. It's like you and I buying a second house in terms of the equivalent of, hey, I've got a house, and then I would like to get um, a, new, a new scroll to copy Matthew's gospel. Well, you could buy another house, 
or you could get a scroll. Like, that's the expense level of making these stories. So if you're thinking Matthew's kind of long, just know how expensive this project is. It's part of the reason why when you read Luke's gospel, it seems as if there's this guy that's funding the project that's this great, important person. And so he gives acknowledgement to him in Luke chapter 1. All that to say, this is not just a little throw-in, like, oh yeah, and then there was another feeding of the 4,000. All this is going somewhere. Have you guys learned that by now? Like when you're reading the Bible, it's careful, it's detailed. Maybe we should say it's inspired by God because it is. Salvation is going to come through the nation of Israel and then bless all the families of the world. So put it all together. Jesus has been hanging around the Sea of Galilee for pretty much our entire gospel journey in Matthew. And last week, something changes. He moves out to Tyre and Sidon. He has this interaction with a non-Jewish woman who's begging for Jesus to heal his daughter. Heal her daughter. Jesus plays hard to get. Eventually he does. But do you remember the line in the story from last week? Jesus says, It is not right for me to do this miracle. My focus is on the children of Israel and not the dogs eating the crumbs under the table. Remember how I said last week, I don't know how to really soften the dog thing? And I really think that Matthew wants to really drive home this point again, because what's the very next story he tells? Jesus goes from saying to a woman, I don't have the focus of Gentile peoples. My focus is Jewish people. So I'm not doing this healing right now, or at least he's, he's playing hard to get. He doesn't seem like it. But then he does the healing, and the next story, he's in the Decapolis. He's healing tons and tons and tons of Gentile people. And then he's feeding four thousand of them because his heart has compassion on them. There is not a chance if you're reading the whole chapter, which is also just a great thing to do when you're reading the Bible. Don't just stop at one story. Read the whole thing. Read the whole section. Read its context around it. Think about it for a minute. If you were wondering at all, maybe Jesus might be racist. Maybe he's too blinded by the needs of the rest of the world. Matthew's going to like say, no, 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 no. He loves cares for, has compassion on all the peoples of all the world. All Gentile peoples, all seven of them, all of the fullness of their perfection. In other words, Jesus told the woman in last week's story that I'm going to the children of Israel and then the dogs can eat the crumbs. And our story this week says the breadcrumbs that fall from the master's table are enough to feed the whole world. Yeah, amen to that. Like, come on. Do you see what I mean? The first story about the woman in the Canaanite, then this story. The breadcrumbs are enough to feed the world. 
This is how great the feast is. The feast is so rich and so abundant that God's table is infinitely full of good, life-giving food for the children of Israel that even the very breadcrumbs from that table will be able to go to the ends of the earth. Some suggest that 4,000 is pointing to four, and it's a Jewish kind of symbol for the four corners of the earth. Either way, we know it's Jew and Gentile with these two feeding stories, and Jesus cares and feeds and wants all of them to participate in his blessings. Do you believe that there's enough bread for the whole world? See, this is what I mentioned earlier in the sermon. Right when we started, there's going to be things that cause you to doubt the promises of God. You're going to question whether or not there's really enough. And you're going to look around and you're going to see literally starving children. You're going to see the aches and pains of this world. And you're going to wonder, is there really enough bread? And these two stories of the 5,000 and 4,000 is to declare to you that through Jesus Christ, the God of Israel will fulfill his promises and there is enough. Enough to satisfy everyone. Enough to satisfy everyone and have leftovers. Do you believe then that Jesus is the bread of life to satisfy the needs of the whole world? Or does that sound a little, uh, really? Because if we do, then Matthew's going to end his gospel in the most appropriate way. Go therefore and make disciples of all peoples and teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded because there is not a single person on this earth that will not need the bread of life from Jesus. All of us need it. So then it comes down to the question, do you have compassion like Jesus does? He is not a racist, ethnically centric in his thinking and his focus that he cannot see beyond his own ethnic biases. He is not like that. He sees hurting people and he has compassion on them and it is gut-wrenching. When you behold the compassion of Jesus, does it do anything to stir up your heart? Friends, we're in a far worse state than being three days without any food and we might faint on our ride home. We're in a far worse state. Psalm 107 explained it well. Wandering in a desert wasteland, finding no way to city no way for a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, and then the souls are fainting within us. I think both physically and spiritually, Jesus cares with compassion about your spiritual hunger and your physical hunger. Let's not over-spiritualize the Bible, and let's see the way that Jesus comes to satisfy all the needs and all the desires and all the problems of the whole world. This Savior is for all, for there is no name under heaven by which man can be saved except Jesus. So we need to ask ourselves if we're being melted by this in any way, does it not 
pour out love toward your neighbor or to the nations? Does it not compel us to leave the United States and go on trips and go send people and spend money and spend our hearts and our longings to say the world needs Jesus? The God of Israel fulfills his promises through Jesus. And Jesus is going to give bread to the whole world by giving thanks and breaking it. Giving thanks and breaking it. The last thing I want to mention is that the God of Israel fulfills his promise through Jesus in every which way of the word that you could imagine that to mean. It is only through Jesus Jesus himself being the true representative of all the nation of Israel. The promise that he gave to Abraham. Abraham, through you and through you, I will make a great nation. And through that nation, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. Jesus is Israel. He is the representative and the head of the new covenant. So that through Jesus, all the blessings of the new covenant and all the promises find their yes and their amen. And so Jesus' broken body will feed the hungry, starving, desperate world. He is the loaves. And in order for the loaves to be shared, they must first be broken. Therefore, Jesus, in order to be the rescuer of the whole world, had to first be broken. And if any of you remember in Matthew chapter 14 when we were going through the feeding of the 5,000, the language of gave thanks, broke, and gave is the same exact verbs used in the upper room when Jesus is having a final meal. He takes bread. He breaks it. He gives it to the disciples. But remember, he says, this bread is my body given for you. Why do we know that the God of Israel will fulfill his promises through Jesus and feed a hungry, starving world in every way? Physical hunger, spiritual hunger, all needs, mental, emotional, comprehensively, he will heal the lame. Restore body parts that are missing. One day, all of us will be full and whole again. How does he do that? By being broken, dying on a cross, and giving his body for you and for me and for the whole world. He then rises again from the dead. His body gets put back together. He is the first fruits of the resurrection so that you and I can know that God is going to fulfill his promise through Jesus because through Jesus, he was broken and he was made alive. Look at him. Behold him. Broken and resurrected. The resurrection of Jesus is the reason why you and I, when we look at all of the pain and suffering in this world, you can say, I'm going to trust him. So is that enough for you to trust him, at least for today or the next week? I pray it will be. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks now for your word, and we want to thank you for Jesus being the center of your word, that you 
have orchestrated all of the events of history and all the writings of the Bible in such a way to present to us a beautiful picture of the glory of your Son, Jesus. So we want to thank you for the compassion of Jesus. We want to thank you for the love of Jesus, for his love for Jew and Gentile, his love for the sick and the healthy, his love for the sinner and the righteous. God, we're so thankful that you love all of us on this earth and that you have promised that you will restore and redeem and renew the heavens and the earth and they will be made right. So come, Lord Jesus. Fulfill your promises. Return and establish your kingdom in its fullness. We are longing and hungering and waiting because we look around and we see shootings in malls and we see babies and two-year-olds dying in pools and our hearts break, God. Come. Heal now in the meantime while we're waiting and heal fully and finally all of us in the resurrection of the dead. We're praying, God, that you would hear our prayers and you would deliver as you have promised. Give us all now hope to get through another week and whatever it might bring. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.